right. Well, through, through December, since we do Lottie Moon, we've been talking about kind of other countries. Do you guys know people live in other countries? Did you know that? Yeah. Like China? But they all speak English, right? No. no. Oh, they don't all speak English? No. Isn't that weird to think about? Do you guys, when you think, do you think in English? Yes. You think in English? I think in English. Do you guys think in Do you think in pictures? You think in Chinese? That's pretty impressive. That's yeah. pretty impressive. It's pretty crazy that people all across the world wake up and they talk totally different languages, nothing like ours. So I have a list here of uh, how to say Merry Christmas in a bunch of other languages. So any of you guys want to try to read one of those for me? You goes for it. Oh, you knew Feliz Navidad. That's pretty good. That's a good one. Uh, anyone know Feliz Navidad? You sing that song before? So we're pretty good about that one here in New Mexico. What about, uh, anybody want to try the German one? Here, let's see. Right there, that one right there. Oh, the Joy X Noel, that's French. It's like Joy or something. I don't, I don't know French. So there's the German one. What do you guys think? You got to think we're German. You got to like sound angry, though. No, it's like. Right. I don't know. That one sounded. Ten is at the end. You guys know it? People, people can read that. Isn't that crazy to think about how people can read that? So I was thinking of all of these languages. I, which one do you think God knows? Every. What, you think God knows every one of those languages? Yeah. That's a lot of languages, though. Oh, he made them all with the Tower of Babel. That's a good point, right? God knows all of these languages. And what does God think about all of these people who speak these languages? He loves every one of them. And he wants them to know the story. So you and I, we may not be able to go and talk these languages and teach these people, but do you know there are people from America, and we have family that do this, that they know languages like uh, Croatian right here. That's the one our family speaks uh, when they, uh, that one says, Seraten Bozik, Bozic. I don't know. I'm not good at that one either. But here surely they'll come tell us. And so when we do Lottie Moon, it helps those people to learn those languages and tell over in there in those countries that those people, that God loves them. And that's pretty cool. So maybe one of you can start learning a new language. Sound good? Nope, not for you. Just going to stick with English? Okay, sounds good. All right, you guys are free to go back to your seats. All right, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 3. And I apologize. I don't really apologize because I'm not sorry at all. But this is one of those Sundays that you get to turn pages a lot. So uh, Genesis chapter 2, 3, and 4, Exodus chapter 16, Deuteronomy 24, Matthew chapter 6. We'll start in Luke 3. So, and I'll have them on the screen if you want to uh, follow that way as, as well. Christmas season, more traditionally, we actually kind of refer to it as Advent season. And we talked about this last week, but Advent is just the Latin word for arrival or, or coming. And so if you have an Advent calendar you do at home, uh, the Christmas season, what we do is we, we Advent, we wait for the arrival of Jesus. And we almost always at Christmas season talk about that in terms of the nativity, the birth of Jesus in the manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. But when we just pull back and talk about the concept of Advent, the Bible sees that a little bit more broadly. In fact, there's three different ways in which the Advent of Jesus comes. There's the Advent in his birth, but there's also the Advent in his starting of his ministry, at his baptism, and to the, into the messianic ministry of Jesus. And then there's the Advent of the second coming that we still await for, that Jesus is going to arrive again, this time as a conqueror, to set the worlds to right. 
So this Christmas season, what I wanted to focus on is not so much the nativity story, although that is important and we sing about it, but I want to hone in on that second one because during the second advent before Jesus launches his earthly ministry, there is a forerunner, the last in the lineage of prophets, Jesus' cousin John the Baptist. And John the Baptist calls these people to follow him and these crowds gather around him with repentance heart, repentant hearts and they ask him in Luke chapter 3 verse 10, what should we do? And he tells them, in preparing for Jesus to come and getting your hearts ready, here is the proper set of actions. He replied to them, verse 11, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? And he told them, don't collect any more than what you have been authorized. And so some soldiers also questioned him, what do we do? What should we do? And he said, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation, but be satisfied with your wages. And now the people were waiting expectantly, and all of them were questioning with their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. And John said, no, I baptize you with water, but one, Jesus, who is coming more powerful, and I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So how do we prepare our hearts? How do we make room for the one who came to baptize with the Holy Spirit? How do we make room for the one who was, uh, John was unworthy to tie his sandal? Well, for John, he gives three instructions for the plentiful, simplify and share. For the rich tax collector, be mindfully generous with your money and to the powerful soldier, be content and do justice. So this is what we've been talking about. Last week, we talked about the idea of simplifying and share. So this week, we're going to talk about the idea of what does it mean to be mindfully generous. If you want to see Jesus, if you want to experience Jesus this Christmas season, then preparing your heart for him demands to be mindfully generous. And as I say that, and as I start to wade into this sermon, I just have to be honest, I, I hate talking about money. Like, I, I hate it. And it's not just like I hate it from here. I, I do, in a way. But I also like just hate it in my personal life. So yesterday, uh, I mentioned with the Simplify and Share last week that Haley and I are trying to take one weekend and clean out closets. And so yesterday, it was uh, our freezer, our fridge, and our food pantry, just to clean it out, get things kind of settled and reorganized. And one of the things I wanted to do with that decision uh, was I downloaded an app on my phone that scans the barcode of everything we have in our pantry and our refrigerator, and then it logs it in like, uh, so we know what we have. And there's even like a button you can push that I'm like, make a recipe with all the ingredients that are already in my household. And it pops up a bunch of recipes that I can just, it's really cool. So I downloaded it and doing what apps now do, it was like free and I'm scanning items and I get to one and it's like, uh, your, your trial, free trial is expired. In order to scan more items, you need to purchase the actual app. And it was one of those things that was like $14 for a year or $30 for a lifetime. And my brain's like, ah, if I'm going to do this, I have to talk to Haley about money. And I don't want to talk about money. And so I'm just going to buy it and not worry about it. And then, you know, and it's not even like we're super strapped for cash or anything. But still, she sees because the second I spend money, it sends a text to her phone that's like, hey. So she's like, hey, did you spend $30? Here we go again. I get to talk about, like, I hate talking about money. I don't even like talking about it with my own wife, and it's our money that we share together. And so I was thinking this week about, like, how much I, I really just don't like that even from this position. 
Uh, I've been in ministry now for about 10 years, and so I was calculating how many sermons over the last 10 years I've preached, and somewhere in the vicinity of 450 to 500 unique sermons that I've preached in the span of my ministry. And I went back and looked, how many of those have I talked about or preached on uh, giving and generosity? Can you guess? Out of the like 480? Two. This makes three. So we are officially at three. And then you compare that to Jesus, who like 17 of Jesus' 34 parables are on money and giving somewhere in the vicinity of 25% of what he teaches on on a regular basis is money and giving and how we live in relationship to those things. So for something that for me is so just minute and little and unimportant for Jesus was volumes and always what he had on the back of his mind. So in lieu of that, once a month next year, I'm going to be preaching about money. And that's a joke. I'm not going to be, be doing that. But here's my point. I hate talking about money. And it's even weirder when I get up in a pulpit and I wear a pop star microphone and try to tell you about what you should do with your money. And that doesn't, that's not lost on me. I've been trying to figure out why that is, and I think there's a complex reality that we live in. One is that in our American culture, we have just been trained that money is off the topic of discussion. We don't talk about money. It's impolite. I still remember being little and asking my mom, like, is our uncle rich? And my mom being like, that's impolite. Don't ask questions like that. Like, don't, don't talk about it. It's weird. So you, you couple that with this kind of church reality where the history of the church has kind of been marred a bit uh, through, through financial problems. So even back in the 1500s, when the Catholic church at that point was starting to sell indulgences, and that was the idea that if you give money to the church, then your loved ones who have died and are now suffering in purgatory can be released from purgatory. And they would say things like, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs and that was one of the main things that started Luther on the Reformation, and so we see that. But even now to the modern day, to the televangelist that stands on your TV screen in a fancy suit and tie and pearl white teeth and a smile that's way too big for his mouth and says, you just got to sow your seed right here. You sow your financial seed with us. God's going to bless you 50, 100, 150 fold. And then they get in their private jet and fly away while people who are struggling to put food on the table send them another check. And that's not lost on me. I understand that when I stand in this pulpit and I begin to teach you about what you should be doing with your money, that that's not a light subject. And who am I to tell you what to do with that? So, so just please understand from the start of today as I talk through money and generosity and giving, this is and this only is a sincere attempt to teach on what my Savior taught about second most often only to the kingdom of God. And I would just invite you to lay aside your boundaries and what is this guy trying to get from me and to ask the question, who, who is really Lord over the way I treat and the way I spend my money? Because this is not a new problem to humanity, but it's one that we can trace, I believe, all the way back to the opening story of Genesis. So with that in mind, I just want to do a, a quick tour through the Old Testament into Jesus and to look at this problem that is far less a problem that we deal with just today and is far more a human problem from the beginning of time. So Genesis chapter 2, let's, let's start there. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man, Adam, and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. 
And the Lord of God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, for on that day you eat from it, you will certainly die. The opening narrative of Genesis tells the story of God creating man and then eventually woman, but just man at this point, and then placing that man in a garden where he calls Adam to tend to, to work that garden. But did you notice the interesting thing in this story? Adam is to tend to and watch over and rule over this garden, but in this garden already exists an abundance of provision. He says, Adam, go and work the garden And I have already planted the trees that you can eat from in there. I have already provided the fruit for you to enjoy in this garden. There's just one rule. This tree right here is off limits. Every other one is good, but not the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They don't have to sweat and labor and work to eat. Rather, Adam and Eve are just to live in adherence to the command of God in unified relationship with him. And God ensures that everything they could ever need is provided. Of course, they're tricked by the tempter. They defy the one command, and with that defiance, sin enters into the world. And as God looks at this sin in the world, he begins to speak over what the result is going to look like. And in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, the ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat of the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow. No longer is the simplicity of God's provision something that is easily noticed or seen, but rather it's worked for. Adam and Eve and their kids would have to work to, to tend to their own needs, and the work would be hard. And we have to understand that this is the environment that then Cain and Abel grow up in. This is the regular practice for them, so it's no wonder that when we get to chapter 4, we find where it says, Now Abel became a shepherd of the flocks, but Cain worked the ground. Both of them had jobs. They had labor-intensive things that they had to do, and it wasn't that God had stopped providing, but God was going to provide through their adherence now to the command of work, that how they worked would be tied to what they garnered. So Abel caring for sheep, Cain working the ground, each turn around and give a portion back to God. Abel's is pleasing and Cain's is not. And so, verse 3, in the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock in their fat portions. And God had regard for Abel's and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. Now, there's far more complexities and considerations to bring out of this story than what we have time for, but I just I want you to see this premise just right here from the beginning of the fall. Sin lies to Cain. That's the lie that's settled into Cain's heart. It's seeking to convince Cain that the problem is not some uh, the problem is not internal and personal to his own heart, but the problem is that God's kindness and God's love, it's it's limited. It's in limited supply, so if Abel garners a little bit more of God's love than what Cain did, then the fault can't be Cain's. The fault is that there's competition for that. And if Cain wants more of God's love, then the logical conclusion is kill Abel. If we get rid of Abel, then God's love can abound to me. There's scarcity and limits to what good God can bring. 
And this launches then a trend of death and destruction so vast that by Genesis chapter 6, God decrees judgment on the entire world. So here's the pattern I, I want you to pick up just from the very beginning pages of Scripture. That right from the top, God gives with abundant and sufficient provision. That God is an abundant giver, but then sin comes in, and sin begins to instill doubt and worry. Can we really trust God to give? Can we really trust God to provide those needs? And it's that doubt and worry that leads to anger or jealousy or selfish motivation. I can't really trust God, so I need to take matters into my hands, and I will deal with the problem. That's Genesis 3. That's Genesis 4, and that's the reality today. And as that jealousy and anger and self-motivation then sets in, it leads to violence and destruction. And so with that pattern in mind, go with me to Exodus chapter 16. In a lot of ways, the story of Exodus is the retelling of the birth story of creation. But this time, instead of creating the world, God is creating a new people. He's calling out his chosen people, Israel, rescuing them out of slavery, and then bringing them into the promised land. But, but in between the Red Sea and the promised land, there's what we often refer to as the wilderness wanderings. And it's in this wilderness wandering that God starts to teach Israel on how to rest and rely on his provision because he's going to be the one that provides them with manna and quail. So they have just come out of the Red Sea, Exodus chapter 16. They're on the other side. They're freed from slavery. And we get to verse 12. The people are complaining, wondering if they'll have anything to eat. And so Moses says, I've heard the complaints of the Israelites. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, I've heard the complaints of the Israelites, so tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will eat bread until you are full, and you will know that I am the Lord your God. So at evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew all around the camp, and when the layer of dew evaporated, there were fine flakes on the desert surface, fine as frost on the ground. And when the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. And Moses told them, this is the bread that the Lord has given, provided for you. How much has God given to the Israelites? Well, abundantly. That's the idea. God gives abundantly and sufficiently to meet the needs of the Israelites. And so he then begins to give them commands. This is what the Lord commanded. Verse 16, gather as much of it as each person needs to eat. You may take two quarts per individual according to the number of people in each of you in your tents. So the Israelites did this. Some gathered a lot, some a little. But when they measured it by quarts, the person who gathered a lot had no surplus, and the person who gathered little had no shortages. Each one gathered as much as he needed to eat. So here, on the other side of the Red Sea, at the opening of this nation, God's introductory command is share food. Ensure everyone among you has enough to eat, because I will give abundantly to those needs. Of course, in true human nature, it takes all of two seconds for people to give in to this little voice in their head. Verse 20. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some people left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. Therefore, Moses was angry with them. In their brains, they start hearing, what if God doesn't do this again tomorrow? Oh, what if God stops providing? I mean, what if I don't have enough? And so they do what any wise person would do. 
They defy God's command and they tuck a little bit back for extra and it ends up spoiling. And do you see the continuation of the pattern of Genesis? God provides abundantly to meet the needs of the people, but when their sin nature instills doubt and worries, leading them to greedy and consumption, they, in effect, put their neighbors in precarious predicaments. Because for me to take more means that my neighbor may not get what they need. And it's almost as if we can hear the echoes of Genesis 4. Am I really my brother's keeper? Is it really on me to care for that person over there? To which God would just aboundingly yell, Yes, it is on us to care for one another. This is what God has instilled into creation. And being mindful and true to my needs in faith rather than to the worry that has a direct effect on my brother and my sister. So in combating the pattern, God brings his people to the base of a mountain where he begins to give them new terms for how they're to live their life. He gives them a law. And there's a lot of commands in this law, but there's one particular command. In Leviticus, it talks about how you're not to harvest the edges of your field, only the center. Deuteronomy 24 then retells that same command with a couple extra steps. And so at the end of Deuteronomy, in verse, or Deuteronomy 24 and verse 22, God says this. Well, let me start in verse 19. When you reap the harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, don't go back and get it. That's to be left for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord God may bless you in all the works of your hands. And when you knock down the fruit from your olive tree, don't go back over the branches again. What remains is to be left for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. And when you gather grapes from your vineyard, don't glean what's left. What remains is to be left for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. So the command is till. Plant, water, sweat over this land, but don't harvest some of it. And for the stuff you do harvest, if anything falls, leave it there. Go and work hard for something that's going to bless someone else entirely. That's the command. Why? Why would God call them to do this? Well, if you read the end, verse 22, remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this. God's call to Israel. Remember you were slaves. Remember you had nothing. Remember that everything you are, everything you have, Israel, is because I have rescued you. That freedom, that field, the seed you planted, it was all won by me when I brought you out of Egypt. You see, that pattern that humanity has been entrapped in, what is God's remedy for that pattern? Well, it's always to remember how he first loves us. To understand that everything we have, it's just a rental. And when you take the rental that God has entrusted you with and you absorb it into yourself, you deprive the world of justice. You deprive yourself of living and looking like God. This command is then further fleshed out more from vineyards and fields into the call of the Old Testament tithe, which is the command to return 10% of everything you own. And that's not just financial in the Old Testament. That's 10% of your flocks, 10% of your clothing, 10% of your food. It is all taken, bundled up, and presented back to the temple. And we'll press into that a little bit more, but, but for now, I just want you to understand this is a key command in what is supposed to set Israel apart from every other nation 
around her. This is a key part of God's vision of his unique and holy nation called to be distinct from the world. And it's actually the adherence to this specific rule that leads to Ruth and Boaz's relationship, if you know that story. Ruth, a widow foreigner, comes back with her mother-in-law to Israel where she is walking through Boaz's field, taking what Boaz has not harvested, and Boaz notices her. And it's actually their relationship and their marriage that makes them the great-grandparents of King David. God takes this command and he works it into his messianic lineage. It is the adherence and the obedience of generous realities that brings about the birth of the Messiah in a way. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that when Jesus comes upon the scene, he begins to perpetuate the exact same mantra. You've received from the extravagant generosity of God, so go on living out that generosity, remembering you were once slaves, but I have rescued. Now live in response. So as he teaches on these things, it's perfectly in line for him to say things like what he says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. When he begins to say, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And he goes on and then he says, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one or he will love the other. He'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And Jesus cannot say it more plainly. He just, you cannot serve both God and money. You see, in Jesus' estimation, one of the biggest competitors for your heart is your stuff. It's funny, when Matthew's writing this, he's, he's writing in Greek, but in that it is impossible for man to serve both God and money. That, that word money, Matthew actually doesn't use a Greek word there. He, he takes an Aramaic word. It's the Aramaic word mammon. In fact, if you read from the King James Version, your King James Version will just transliterate that. It'll say, you can't serve both God and mammon. Now, you and I almost never use the word mammon unless you love the King James Version, which you might every so often. But the word mammon is the Aramaic word that means treasures, possessions. It's not just limited to your money. It's all the things that you have and hold dear and own. And Jesus comes and he attacks that very thing. If you think you can follow Jesus, but that your possessions and your money is not a threat to the depths of your and his relationship, you are asleep to the hold it has and the freedom it robs us of. It is impossible to serve both God and money. It will keep perpetuating that pattern. God provides abundantly worry. Sin convinces us to worry. We say, God, I don't really think you can provide. I need to handle it. And then we hurt other people. So what's the remedy? Well, in the Old Testament, it's the edges of fields and tithing. But if you go through the New Testament, you'll actually find that Jesus never recapitulates that command to tithe, nor does any other New Testament author. In fact, in Luke 11, Jesus critiques the Pharisees' adherence to the rule of the tithe, because it actually doesn't change in me. He says in Luke eleven forty-two, Woe to you, Pharisees, you give a tenth of mint and rue and every kind of herb, and you neglect justice and love for God. So while tithes were a band-aid, it doesn't cure the issue. It doesn't remedy the problem. So are we just off the hook then? 
hey, it never says to tithe again. We don't have to worry about anything. Let's just go about our merry day. But that would totally misunderstand the pattern of what Jesus has done in the New Testament over and over. Because every time Jesus takes us back to an Old Testament command, he doesn't drop the bar. He raises the bar. So Jesus will say things like, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, anyone that's hated his brother in his heart has already committed murder. Murder to hatred. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks lustfully after a woman has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus takes the command and he raises it. It would be a huge disservice to think that Jesus takes the command of the tithe and just throws it away entirely. No, what Jesus does is he takes it, but instead of raising it to a numerical amount, he just says, I'm taking it from the tithe to mindful generosity. I'm calling you to give intentionally whenever and however God is calling you. Being mindfully generous then is a freeing command to steward our possessions and our treasures as rentals, trusting that God can honor that obedience. Be that obedience the gift of unfathomable acts of laying down more money than most of us could ever even imagine. But the tiny act of giving two little dollars when that's what hurts most. Both happen in the New Testament. Both are honored. God uses both the young child's lunch of bread and fish and the entire field that's sold and given away. It's never a question of quantity or worth, but it's a heart of generosity. Not a matter of what you give, but a matter of how and why. And understand, this is not a gray area in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible tells a story of how God, the, the creator of the universe, is by his nature radically generous to those, us, who do not deserve it. That's the story of Jesus, that he would come and give of himself freely so that you and I might experience life, that we might be rescued, that he would give his life on a cross, that those who don't deserve it could be redeemed. So it's no wonder that God would then call us to carry that same heart, to demonstrate that same gospel in word and in deed, stretching from how we practice prayer and devotion to how we view and treat our money. So what does this mean practically? Three things, and I'll leave you with this. Now, just off the top right here, just really quickly, I don't expect you to memorize all three of these things. It's, that's, not, that's not what this is about. I just want to give three, I think, Practical principles of being generous. And just pray that it, maybe God will give you one of those to pick up on. Just something to talk about and think and pray through. And then I'll close this out. Number one, true generosity demands more than our leftovers. We, we live in ludicrous, ludicrous amounts of comforts in our everyday lives. I mean, kings of 50 years ago do not live as lavishly as we live today. I just talked about having an app on my phone that scans every piece of food I have and then tells me recipes to make out of it. That is mind-boggling to someone 10 years ago. 
And we now, just with that, start, have started to live in this unspoken assumption that says, well, as I get older, I get nicer places and vehicles and maybe a vacation home. And my life is pre-programmed to move up and to the right. That is the program of my life. And understand, I'm not saying that any of those things are bad. Please do not interpret this as some biblical command that forbids savings accounts or retirement or vacation homes or rainy day funds. That's not the point. But, but my point is this. Haley's, her, her middle sister, who is now a missionary in Croatia, uh, when she was doing school, one of her semesters was to go to Mali, Africa for six months. She was to do mission work there in Mali in the Bush tribe. She spent nights in, uh, nights in hammocks with bug nets covering the hammock, using outhouses and pots of water to clean up after you go to the bathroom because they didn't have toilet paper. Uh, she ate whatever the village was growing over an open campfire. She would sit around and tell stories of Jesus at the campfire. That was her, her six months in Mali. I, can, I couldn't fathom doing that. She now lives in Zagreb, Croatia, which is this borderline, like, utopic city that the entire city looks like a Thomas Kincaid painting. It's, like, perfect. And she lives across the street from a giant supermarket. So the question that sets in, was God happier with her when she slept in a bug-covered hammock rather than a comforter-covered mattress? No, that's ridiculous. Both of those places need Jesus. Both of them have lost people. This is not a commentary on how you must live in poverty or what you must give up. But it's to realize that mindful generosity, while it doesn't have to be a full abandon of all the things that surround us, and our danger is not necessarily that we live among niceties. It's that we assume we're owed those niceties and we never even stop to consult what Jesus would have us do. So when we hear generosity, our first inclination is, what do I give with my leftovers once my assumed standard of living is fully met? Once the bills are paid and I have everything I could ever want and more, then what am I supposed to give to God? That's never the biblical model given to us. Instead, it calls us to take a sober and honest look at our lives to allow God to critique the boundaries and restrictions that we draw around our possessions and then to hand it over to him. This is a quote from C.S. Lewis, and I love it because I think it just really encapsulates this. I do not believe one can settle on how much we ought to give I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, and amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they're too small. There ought to be things that we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures excludes them. True, mindful generosity demands so much more than our leftovers. Number two, faith demands risk, including financial risk. I've learned that the Holy Spirit most often works clearly in my full surrender and becomes most muddled when I'm trying with my feeble attempts to keep control on things. And while this doesn't mean that we should be unwise with our money, it does mean God works with those humble enough to entrust everything to him and courageous enough to trust that he will catch them on the other side. So please don't hear this as some manipulative that if you give X amount here, then God's going to grow it later. And bl That's not what I'm trying to ever say and suggest. It's simply an observation. The more I rely on myself, my finances, my comforts, the less I rely on God. 
And the less I rely on God, the less I see or experience his moving. Generosity is just another means, another tool that I can surrender my grip on this world and garner his presence in my daily life. That might be the 10% tithe. That might just be the starting point. That might not be even feasible. And it might go above and beyond that. The point being, finally, generosity demands prayerful consideration. Mindful generosity demands prayerful consideration. See, the reason I believe the New Testament never directly reinforces the rule of the tithe is because it often lands us in the wrong mindset. Where giving becomes this mindless calculation where more or less we look at a number, we calculate it, we write the check, and we send it. Never praying, thinking, or asking God what he would have us to give. And that's not the biblical model. In fact, that's what caused the Pharisees to have problem. Instead, it's to prayerfully come to God and say, God, this is what you've entrusted me with. What might I give back to you? And I love this because what it does is it levels the playing field. This is what God calls us to. This is why in Mark chapter 12, as Jesus is standing in the temple next to the donation box, and there's these people coming and throwing lump sums of money in, and this feeble elderly widow comes up and drops in two essentially pennies, and Jesus calls his disciples and says, look, 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 this is what it's about. Because she didn't give out of her wealth. She gave out of her poverty. She didn't give from the leftovers. She gave what she had. And that two pennies made more of a difference to our Savior than all of the money. Because, see, this isn't about the money. It's about your heart. If you want the life of Jesus, then you have to follow the lifestyle of Jesus. So what do you need to do? Last week when I closed, I closed with a big kind of long poetic prayer about shopping. I won't do that to you again, although I did really enjoy that. This week as I close, I want to read from another liturgy, this time a far more ancient liturgy, in Philippians chapter 2. And I would just ask you to prayerfully consider that this is how you live your life. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is how our God has loved us. How do you love him back? Father God, we thank you for the chance to open your word and study it this morning. And I pray as we consider what it means to be a mindfully generous church, that you would invite our hearts into your heart to live and act and see as you live and act and see that all of these things we have and we possess, God, they're nothing but rentals. God, our degrees, our homes, our vehicles, our bank accounts, all of it is what you have given us first. So God, open our eyes to see how we give back. That our hearts would not be drawn to the pleasures of this world, but to the eternal kingdom that you are bringing.
And God, if there is anyone in here that doesn't know of that sacrifice you made, that doesn't know of the eternal kingdom that you have offered them citizenship to through your sacrifice, God, may they come to know it this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what do you need to do? This is your chance just to reflect and pray. I'll be up here to pray with you if you would like. Let's stand.